0: to the Swapflix Podcast. My name is Brandon LeVay. I'm James Cohn.
1: I'm Hannah Rasnan. And I'm Brittany Lombas.
0: And we are recording in James and Hannah's living room once again in person. All the microphones are on this time, so (laughs) we're doing better than the last round. Yes, I'm I'm excited for my voice to come through. (laughs) Um, I also want to report that we had a new review that I saw on our iTunes account. (gasps) What? Stop it. Stop it. I'm going to blow through this wall. Five stars! Awesome podcast. This is my daughter and her friends' podcast. It is funny, serious at times, but overall very entertaining. Thank you so much. <laughs> i kill myself. No, it's great. I should have sprung that on you, but I thought it was very adorable. Oh, so that was Brittany's. Yeah, Okay. sounded like my mom. It was definitely your mom. Oh, right. okay. If all of our moms could review the show on oh iTunes, I'd be very grateful. <laughs> my mom Tell
2: would your totally hair review this <laughs> show. <laughs>
0: That made my day the other day. I should have oh, texted you about
3: it. Oh, God. She's out of control and I can't stop her. This is like bringing me back to when I was like 15 and she got Facebook and she added all my friends. I was like, oh, no, thanks for being friends with
0: podcast. Friend. I'm Facebook friends with your mom and I've never met her in person.
3: She does this. She doesn't stop. And then I'm like, it's weird. She's like, why is it weird? And I'm like, I can't explain it to you. <laughs> if like, you don't you know. You know.
0: Yeah. Well, it's the first review we've had since Mr. Hot Dog Boy, and um, I appreciate it well, very guess now, much.
3: Now we know Mr. Hot Dog Boy isn't my mom. Yeah, we narrowed
0: it down one person. The mystery continues on though. Have y'all been watching movies lately? Can we uh, entertain Brittany's mom with some movie selections in oh. the past couple weeks.
3: Oh god, you're just gonna judge me. Um, you know what, honestly, like I haven't been watching a lot of movies just because I've been like so busy that I haven't had time to like actually focus on something. That wasn't like, you know, an episode of Superstore, but I did watch like some comfort movies that like, I know everything that happens in them from beginning to end. So I don't have to stress out about watching them. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I watched both of the Brady Bunch movies that came out in the 90s. For a very specific reason, right? Oh, I did it again. I did it again.
0: <laughs> again.
3: So I did it for a very specific reason a few weeks ago. <laughs> but I just did it again because I missed it so much. Um, So that specific reason is I am doing... I, well, I, I did. I recorded an episode about the Brady Bunch movies with the folks for the uh, We Love to Watch podcast. So, yeah. yeah. um, Very excited about that. That was a lot of fun. It was cool to talk about those two movies with people who... Loved it and appreciated them as much as I did. So, uh, but yeah, I kind of missed them. And then I'm like, I'm going to watch those movies again because those movies are like my family. Um, (laughs) (laughs) my big (laughs) fucked up incestful Brady family. (laughs) Um, so yeah, of course, you know, the first movie is, um, just the Brady Bunch movie. Um, Shelley Long is in it. I love her. And, and some other folks that you'll recognize Marie McCormick who was like meant to be Marsha Brady. And that movie pretty much is about like, how funny would it be for the Brady Bunch to be in the 90s? And it really focuses on how silly it is for them to be living in like this, like cool 90s world where a very Brady sequel, the second one kind of gets over that, like, oh, whoa, a car phone. What are the Brady's going to say? Like, you know, like it's not so much about like how funky it is for them to be in the 90s. It just plays on all these like crazy things that happen in the actual Brady Bunch series and is almost like a like a wink wink to the fans throughout the entire movie, and it's a lot of fun. They go to Hawaii to rescue a kidnapped Carol Brady. <laughs> so yeah, um what are what's y'all relationship with
0: the Brady Bunch movies?
1: I don't think I've ever seen an episode of The Brady Bunch.
0: Yes. I don't think you need to have seen the show to watch the movies. Though. Right. Okay.
1: You I, get it. Yeah. Get no, it. I, yeah. And I know the Brady Bunch. I, I just like it was never a part of my household. We just never, I saw like Marsha in like the waiting room in the dentist's office or something. And yeah, that, that, that that's, sounds very Brady. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I always like liked the idea of the Brady Bunch. It just seemed like this, you know, like a collage of family and like, I don't know. I just want I kind of like wanted to be in the Brady Bunch. It just seemed like a a great place to like lots of kids and and older sisters you, and younger sisters and brothers. they are going to eat
3: meatloaf filled right. with lard every night. Right. Like that's all oh. they do. Oh, okay. Well, I don't <laughs> <Yeah.
1: know
0: that. laughs>
3: Disgusting. Don't they have a
0: meat man that just delivers? Sam. Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> who's dating Alice, the maid, who's my favorite. <laughs> Alice. Um. Well, she's played by I can't remember her name off the top of my head. But she plays she has a cameo at the end of the first Brady Bunch movie and she's driving an 18 wheeler. Very large March. But in real life, I think she got really involved with like the Episcopalian church and
0: just like lived alone (laughs) until she died. Oh no.
3: In like some big Episcopalian thing. So yeah. Just thought I'd throw that out there.
0: Do you think the sequel is better than the first one? Kind of sounded like that when you're describing it.
3: The sequel is just like more like nonstop funny than the first one. I don't know. Like, I feel like I always would rent the sequel more than the first one when I would rent these two. Because I could never take them both at once. For whatever reason. I don't <laughs> know if I was only allowed one choice or if they never had them both. But they're both equal. Like, I think they're both equally funny. They're very funny. I haven't that seen there. them since
0: high school. I really thought they were hilarious at the time. Oh. Especially, like, the lesbian subduction stuff. And, like, RuPaul as the uh, principal. RuPaul. The fun casting. Yeah.
1: His Wait. Cummings. Hold on. Is... Is this not the Brady Bunch? Like the
0: No, it's like in the nineties they did these like parodies the pr- of the Brady. Oh! Oh, I should've yeah. said that. I'm sorry.
1: I okay. I was very They're co-
0: mainstream like sex comedies. Oh. But
4: are the movies a satire of the show? Yes. Okay. Okay. It, but the show was never a satire no. of no. like seventies family. No, is... it's the real thing. Oh, okay. And what the movie one I of see. my favorite now parts of it. the
3: show is when the kids would start singing. And they were—they called themselves, like, the Silver Platters. And they sang, like, these really wholesome, embarrassing songs that, like, you cannot get out of your head. Like, I'm obsessed with these songs. And then they performed them in the movies that came out in the 90s as, like, a parody of it. Uh But then I like them just as much. So (laughs) um, watch
1: it for the music, if anything. I'm sorry. I was totally lost. Oh, my God. I'm no longer lost. I think all I
4: remember was... Is it Marcia that gets hit in the face with a oh, football? Nose.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they do a parody of that in the movie. They too. do. Yeah. But
4: that's in the show and the movie. Uh-huh. Yes. It's a gag. Okay. Pretty much
3: almost every wild thing you see in the show, I mean, in the movie, is like a nod to something that actually happened in the show. Including gotcha. Davy Jones showing up to sing with a grunge band at the school dance. So <laughs> uh-huh. in the show, Davy Jones showed up to play at their like school dance because Marsha was his like, he you was, know, like a president of his fan club. Teen heartthrob at right. the time. And now he's like this fifty year old guy that sh- shows up <laughs> and there's like this like Pearl Jam kind of knockoff cover band playing at their school dance and he shows up and they do a grunge version of his song and it's really, really good. Yeah. Huh. So thought I'd throw that out there too.
0: I'm looking forward to the We Love to Watch episode. Uh, yeah we'll break it down
3: it's a lot of fun.
0: I think that's at the end of this month. They're going to, they're doing a whole month in June of um, TV shows that were turned into movies.
3: Yeah. Uh, and pretty much, I want to say almost all of them, uh, maybe not all the ones they're doing, but a lot of them are like from the nineties. Like I think they're doing like the Adams family and Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to listen to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We love fun. those boys. Yes. All right. So yeah. Uh, well, Hannah, what have you been watching? <laughs> um,
2: so,
1: uh, so I, um I wanted, wanted to, Kind of bring up two things. One is, when I was a kid, I watched the animated um, Dreamwork DreamWorks movie, The Prince of Egypt, like over and over again. Um, and I recently rewatched it, and um, first of all, I didn't realize kind of like how fucked up it was. That it, it's not really a kids' movie. Um, there's, you know, like a lot of blood, and they have the scene where they're dropping the the babies for the alligators. Um, to eat. And then I, I also didn't realize how many stars are in the Prince of Egypt. It's like Val Kilmer plays Joseph and or he, he plays the Prince of Egypt and he plays God. Michelle Pfeiffer is in the movie. Um, Steve Martin is in the movie. Ralph Fiennes is in the movie. Um, but anyway, I was just kind of like reliving my my old childhood stomping grounds is like also a secular child. Um, And then I recently watched the uh, new Bo Burnham special Inside, which came, I think it came out last week. Um, And Bo Burnham was, he became viral in around 2006. He had his first, his first video on YouTube called My Whole Family. And it's about, um, it's the joke is that his whole family thinks he's gay. So he's, he was like, 16 or 14 he he's obviously intelligent but had this like really like kind of shitty teen boy sense of humor and he is totally transformed over the last decade so he kind of exited comedy for a while he directed eighth grade which was one of my favorite movies of
0: 202018. One 2018 one of those years yeah you're right
1: it was 2018 Yeah. Yeah. yeah um I mean, it's just like a beautiful, heartbreaking movie. Uh, He was in Promising Young Woman as a very... I mean, his role is just great. He's like the very charming, nice guy. Um, And Inside is his newest comedy special. He took a break for five years. And he made the special while he was basically locked in his house during quarantine for COVID-19. And it's kind of piecing apart the internet age of performance and how toxic the like modern environment is um, politically, sociologically and mostly through like the the dangers of technology and social media And the songs are very well crafted. He's produced every moment down to the second he is, uh, doing the lights and the editing and the direction and the writing. I mean, everything belongs to him. And you can see what an incredible craftsman he is. And I really, really um, enjoyed the special. And it's its gotten very good reviews kind of across the board. Um, but that's probably my favorite 2021 release so far.
0: Yeah, it sounds more like a movie, like an essay film, than like a concert piece or something. Yeah, right? Okay. right,
1: definitely. Yeah, and it's... I mean, one thing I'll say about it is that his mental health is deteriorating throughout the special and it's very hard to watch. And I would caution anybody that has issues with mental health or like, you know, you should at least be aware that that is covered extensively in the special. Um, But I think it captures that isolation and um, just kind of desperation of the last year better than anything else I've seen.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I saw it and I thought it was kind of a lockdown masterpiece. I mean, I know some people have tried to make films about COVID and all that, but this one really captured something about the isolation and the fact that it's Bo Burnham who, like Hannah said, grew up kind of on the internet spotlight. And it's just like a crossroads of all these things. And I thought it was really intelligent and smart and, yeah, emotionally affecting. So yeah, I mean, we should definitely talk about it, maybe on a future episode or something. Yeah. I feel like it's kind of an important, one of those important movies for this <laughs> yes. uh, this past year.
0: Any movies with like the nature and the language of the internet, you know, I'm on board to talk right. about that. Like, I want to see uh, it more now.
1: And actually, one of the best songs is called Welcome to the Internet, and he's like this carnival barker. It's like an Eastern <laughs> European, like jaunty, like it's uh, the song is totally horrifying, but it is the best encapsulation of the kind of chaotic, amoral nature of the internet. Like you're looking (laughs) at like a pasta recipe and then you're looking at like a dead baby or something, you know, it's like context. Yeah, exactly. And it's just fantastic. Um, and his voice is great too. I really like him.
0: There's another movie called beast beast from earlier this year that I loved on, uh, it's actually on Tubi. Like they, they bought it from a festival, which is insane. Uh, (laughs) But that's another one where the three main characters have these, like, hobbies that are, like, theater kid stuff and, like, you know, drum practice. And then one of them's really into shooting guns in the woods. And they're all, like, mixed together on the internet, like, on the same scroll. And it's, like, well, one of those things is not like the others. And that, like, mix of, like, context is, like, really horrifying. Yeah. So, I don't know. I'm interested in that topic for sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, All right. Uh, James, what have you been watching?
4: So, kind of, like... Britney with the nostalgia of watching Pretty Bunch. I watched um, White Men Can't Jump the other day, which um, I remember loving it as like I think I was in middle school, early high school, and I was almost convinced that it would not stand up because it felt so of the '90s, and that's like exactly why I loved it. It's so freaking good, and it's so funny, and you know, it's got a lot of like Yamama jokes. And it's got Rosie Perez, who is, like, so fun. And And
2: so 90s, too. So 90s (laughs) in this.
4: And she ends up on Jeopardy in this, like, climactic scene that is hilarious. And the the basketball stuff appeals to me because I, you know, grew up playing basketball. And it actually told a really interesting story about loyalty. And I don't know. It held up very well. I really enjoyed
0: it. I've watched that recently. Have you? Yeah, I thought it was okay. It just—it's reminding me a lot of Spike Lee, but just not as strong. Like it was just like not as opinionated as like a Spike Lee movie. It was like more of a hangout film, I guess. It was, yeah. and I don't
4: think it was really trying to say a whole lot about race, but it was
0: channeling his visual
4: style, so you're like kind of expecting totally. that, yeah. But yeah, that's what I thought. I was like, oh man, is it going to have this like racial commentary that doesn't stand up? And it actually. You know, it's more about their friendship and his Woody Harrelson's loyalty to like his wife or you know, girlfriend and the Wesley Snipes character. That's really the heart of the film. The race stuff is sort of a secondary concern, which you know, again, they're borrowing that visual style yeah. of Spike Lee without the the messaging.
0: Unimpeachable though, Rosie Perez in that movie. Like that <laughs> one and yes. Fearless are like her two like eight plus like five star performances that I've seen outside of Spike Lee. <laughs> Have you ever
3: seen her in um, It Could Happen to You when she's Nicolas Cage's wife? Oh, oh
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's like yeah.
3: My, my favorite Rosie Perez oh, movie. You yeah. need a Rosie Perez episode. <laughs> yeah. oh yes. yes, I yes, love yes. her in this
4: where like she's just like drinking vodka and studying to be on Jeopardy. And like <laughs> amazing. so many scenes where she's spouting off this kind of like useless, like trivial information. I don't know. And I also like like how openly sexual she is, too. Like, in everything she does, you know, feels very real. And so, yeah, I love I love her. And, I don't know, the two leads, too. Wesley Snipes is really likable in this, and Woody Harrelson. So, I don't know. Sounds like I liked it maybe a little bit more. A little more. I,
0: I didn't, like, dislike it. I was just, like, expecting something a little more opinionated, I guess. Uh, when
4: she finally gets on Jeopardy, though. Oh, uh, that's some, like, great <laughs>
0: reality-breaking absurdism, yeah. Yeah,
4: that, like... <laughs> takes it up a yeah. whole nother level for what
1: me. What is a <laughs> Right?
4: Yeah, and it's like all the categories that she's been studying. Right.
0: It's, <laughs> it's kind of a shame that if we did a Rosie Perez episode, we've already talked about Fearless, which is her, like... I think she was nominated for an Oscar for that mm-hmm. one and, like, well-deserved. She's so yeah. fucking good in that movie. Nice.
4: Yeah, I think I talked about this when we talked about that movie, but that is one of my favorite films of the 90s. Yeah. Fearless is up there. It's top five. Ooh. Um... The other film I rewatched recently was Collateral with Jamie Foxx and Tom Cruise as this like Silver Fox serial killer assassin. And my guy, is that like a great neo-noir? Like, it is so freaking good and exciting. And Jamie Foxx has never been better. And the film channels this like crazy dark energy that Tom Cruise has. Like, I wish he would play villains more often
3: because he's one in real
4: because he is he is one <laughs> yeah, in real life with the whole Scientology <laughs> thing, but I think what I really loved about it was the two main characters are so opposite kind of characters and their arcs like follow this really beautiful trajectory where Jamie Fox basically learns how to be like a Tom Cruise type character and it, you know beautiful nightlife shots of L.A. It looks really sleek and cool. And then in the like final act, where Jada Pinkett Smith, her character comes back into the fold, it just like gets really thrilling in the last like, 20, 30 minutes. Uh, and it's got really smart writing and some really intense action scenes. So I-, I loved it. It definitely, I think, is one of the better neo-noirs of all time. And yeah, everyone's great in it. So... If you I haven't seen it in a while. I think it's worth the rewatch.
0: Yeah, I haven't seen it since it came out when I was in high school. I just remember Michael Mann like using that digital video effect from the yeah. early two thousands. Yep. It was like really striking at the time.
1: Yeah, it's got like that kind of green,
0: Ugh, greenish, it's gross. <laughs>
1: yeah,
4: it is gross. It, but it yeah. works so well in this. Yeah, because like, it's so mm-hmm. Yeah, the way he like lights everything, it's just so cool looking and not like a dated sort of way. I remember when we rewatched bamboozled Spike Lee film from Mm -hmm. around the same time where he does the digital thing. It looks so bad and so dated and this looks so sleek and cool.
1: Yeah, because it's also like it it gives the impression of being shot at night, too. I just associate that green kind of with like a video camera that can't quite get the light right or it's like the, the ISO isn't high enough or something or it's too high. But it, yeah, it just makes you feel like you're in this like gross sludge of LA.
0: I really want to see his Miami Vice movie that he made around that time too. I don't know. I, I like Thief a lot. Um, yeah, Manhunter's pretty good. I don't know.
4: He he did Heat, which is like I've never seen that one. It. I mean, it's got one of the greatest shootout scenes of yeah. all time. A little overlong, but it's like really good too. Yeah, Michael Mann is kind of kind of the shit when it comes to those particular kinds of movies, yeah. but. I still think this one is probably my favorite oh, wow. that I've seen. So That's cool. But anyway, what about you, Brandon? What have you been watching?
0: Uh, last episode on this cycle, you know, I also do the episodes with Boomer and Allie in between. Um, it was just me and Brittany, so I, I kind of unloaded some Brittany content on that episode. <laughs> so I have stuff for James and Hannah this time. Mm. Um, one, I was watching the other day, and I, I was like, man, this is such a James movie. Like, <laughs> It was a movie that I liked okay, but I was like, James would be interested in this. Mm. This was soon after we did the Vertigo episode. I watched this movie called Preparations to Be Together for an Unknown Period of Time, which is a long title. Wow, Uh, It is a Hungarian film. Uh, Its American release was this year. It's about this brain surgeon who uh, lives in New Jersey, and she goes back to her home country in Budapest to take a shitty job at a much smaller, cheaper hospital because she met a man in America, from that Budapest hospital, who she became erotically obsessed with. You read about this? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So she's obsessed with this man that she met once, and she, like, kind of throws her entire life away, chasing him down. And she finally goes to this hospital parking lot where he's getting off from work, and he's like, I've never met you before. I don't know what you're talking about. So the rest of the film, she's, like, kind of trailing him around Budapest, like, trying to figure out, like, is he lying? Is he a ghost? Is he real? It's very vertigo. Like, it's her, like, chasing this, like, ideal, erotic, like, fantasy of a man that she met once mm. and is, like, trying to, like, make that actual genuine connection in real life. And he's like, I have no idea who you are. This is very alarming behavior for you. <laughs> um, so it's kind of fun, like, mystery and like, a psychological thriller way. It reminded me a lot of, like, uh, when I had IFC Channel on my, like, dad's cable as a kid, like... You know, you'd watch a lot of, like, European psych thrillers that are, like, kind of sexy and kind of smart, but they don't really do much. It's, like, all about the atmosphere and, like, the questions it raises. It reminded me a lot of how you were talking about Certified Copy when we did our Best of the Decade.
4: It it also, you describing, kind of reminds me of La Moustache. Yeah. another Mm -hmm. one of my favorites. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's definitely my wheelhouse. Yeah, so for me, it was like a three-star movie. I was like, <laughs> this is pretty good. But it just seemed like it was like ticking more of your boxes. I would love that. Yeah. yeah.
4: Okay, uh, I'll check it out.
0: I got that from the library, so they have a copy of the DVD. Oh. And also, it was just funny, like after watching four versions of Vertigo, like to stumble upon another movie, it was like, oh, this is the same pattern. <laughs> like when people say Hitchcockian, I wonder if like half the time they're just like, oh, it's the Vertigo plot again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or Rear <laughs> Window is another one that gets repeated a lot. Also, for Hana, uh, we did an Almodovar episode last um, mm-hmm. year, and Almodovar has a new short that yeah. premiered on HBO Max uh, a couple months ago. I watched that. Mm-hmm. Um, it is Tilda Swinton doing a one-woman play. Uh. Uh, it's very much like uh, Woman on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, because mm-hmm. it is a straight adaptation of the play that inspired that movie. So it's him like kind of dialing the clock back to like this like 30s play from Cocteau. That inspired Women on the Verge. Yeah. It's his English language debut and it's his first time working with Tilda Swinton, which are both kind of surprising. Yeah. He hasn't done that before. It's good, Almondova. <laughs> like, the costumes are great. Tilda Swinton is, like, fascinating to look at. And the, most of the movie is just staring at her bone structure, like, yeah. watching her wear clothes. Perfect. Yeah. It's fun. Um, it was not, like, one of my favorite movies from him. It mm-hmm. kind of just felt like him, like, what can I do in the middle of a pandemic? Right. It was just, like, one set and one character. But worth a look if you have HBO Max. Yeah,
1: we do. We just got HBO Max, which is where we've been watching all of the episodes of Pottery Throwdown. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, if you're going to pick one person to look at for a, I, I think the movie's like it's like half an hour, 45 minutes or something. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, you might as well pick Tilda Swinton. Yeah. You know. <laughs> have you watched it yet? No, I have not watched it yet.
0: Uh, Derek Jarman, I feel like is what I was thinking about a lot, like. Tilda Swinton was kind of his avatar in a lot of his movies, Mm It's just like, it's that exact thing. Like, I just want to stare at, like, my cheekbones for, like, (laughs) 20 minutes and just kind of figure out what's going on
1: there. What's the deal with your face? Yeah. It's a good face.
0: So if you like Women on the Verge and you like Derek Jarman, I guess this is, like, somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Um, But also, they added, like, 10 Almodovar movies on there.
1: Oh, yay! So, like,
0: way more are available than, like, when we reviewed them Mm -hmm. on the podcast. And I went back to his debut... Which is Peppy Lucy Balm? Mm-hmm. It had everything I wanted out of Women on the Verge, which I yeah. think is a perfect movie and like probably better than Peppy Lucy Balm. But like the parts of that movie that I was really latching onto, like that kind of punk, kind of rough edges to it, and the uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse kind of like right. artificiality of the set design and the costumes. Uh, Peppy Lucy Balm is about the three titular women; two of them are punks. And one of them is raped by a police officer in the first scene of this, you know, slapstick comedy, which yeah. he usually has like sexual assault humor and stuff. Mm-hmm. This movie has a lot of it. The woman is raped by a cop and decides I'm going to destroy his life by getting to his wife first. She has her like shithead punk friends kick the shit out of him in an alleyway, and she like gets orgasmically um, aroused by the sight of it. Um, and then she decides that it's not, that's not enough. I want mm-hmm. to like get his wife too. So she brings the wife over and introduces her to this lesbian dominatrix that she's friends with. <laughs> uh, and the two of them start a, like, sub-dom relationship. Mm-hmm. And the three women and all the punks in their community um, just basically ruin this cop's life. And then do these, like, pink flamingos-type pranks where they just, like, do, like, piss and shit gags for the camera. <laughs> and like um...
3: Love that.
0: It was filmed over two years on, like weekends and borrowed time and like no Mm -hmm. real budget uh this is just after the franco regime so like right these are people like we can do whatever the fuck we want now there are no rules yeah um how do we shock an audience and like you know distinguish ourselves as this like punk culture in spain um and it is so thrilling like (laughs) i really do think it's among his best stuff even though it is like one of the more shoddily made right it's like very raw definitely um and the tonal balance where you're like Oh, I'm not sure if that was in good taste, but I think he got away with it. No, this is all bad taste. <laughs> this is all bad ideas, uh, but don't such, like, punk gusto and, like, I don't know. I, I, I love this so much. It was, like, perfectly in my, like, wheelhouse.
1: Yeah. Well, that that is, that's wonderful. I'm going to have to, I'll have to watch that. I'll have to watch Tilda Swinton. Yep.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and then
1: get on the rest of my Almodovar. I'm
0: trying to remember the other ones. I know they have, like, Tommy up Down. downs one yeah. of the ones we th- thought about watching, um, mm-hmm. and a few that we actually did watch. There's more to discover there. And I kind of feel like, I don't know, I'm not going to rush it, but I kind of want to just see everything he's done. Like, I'm right. still excited every time I see a new one.
1: And I think, I mean, I just think that he has had such an interesting development. as a, Like, his style, the, there is a thread of consistency, but the, like, the actual visual construction of his films is so different across the course of his career. In a way that, like, you can, I think you can mine things from every every kind of era and I would just love to have a even better understanding of his development over that time
0: those two bookends are so different right like, exactly <laughs> Pepe Lucy bomb looks like it cost two dollars and then um <laughs> there's like all this like extremely exquisite like couture fashion design and like production design and um the human voice yeah uh, it's like worlds away right uh so that, that'll give you a good sense of his range just in those two films yeah and they're both very short which you know I also have a low attention span right well. uh, now, yeah. so yeah. that's also like good for me. Taking
3: ticking my boxes right
2: now.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't know why we picked today's topic if we're like struggling to watch movies. Right. Uh, this is us returning to a topic we keep um, kind of cyclically getting stuck on, which is like the greatest films of all time. Uh, <laughs> uh, early last year, we picked movies from the um, Sight & Sound Top 100 that we had never seen before um and this episode we were kind of like what are our bigger blind spots like what is like the best movies ever made if you just ask like a casual person on the street like not even someone's personal taste but just like what is widely understood to be like the best movies ever and i know we did a good job because a few of these so- a few of these movies are on the site and sound top 100 But all of them are on the AFI Top 100, which is the real normie shit. Like, that's when they had those, like, TV specials with, like, 100 Greatest Movie Scenes. Mm -hmm. Like, all of these movies are, like, real mainstream picks for, like, best of all time material.
4: Yeah, and that came out in high school. I was like, all right, I'm going to watch every single one, and then I'm going to know everything there is to know Mm. about film. And (laughs) it's a pretty narrow... Um, sensibility
2: mm-hmm.
0: but I was watching all of these and I was like yep that one's great that's a good yeah, one. movie. that's, good. <laughs> that's, that's that that movie. so hopefully we have a lot more to say other than like yep they did a good job yeah, it was real good <laughs> <laughs> and all that's coming up to you right now
2: good evening Mr. Kane there is a man
0: So this episode kind of came about because last time we all talked we were talking about vertigo and how it took over citizen kane's spot in the uh sight and sound top 100 um as like the greatest film ever made i mean james said you had not seen citizen kane yet no um and we were kind of talking about that pressure a lot on like when you're watching a movie for the first time, you've been hearing, "This is the greatest film ever made," <laughs> which I feel like for um, our lifetime, Citizen Kane has been like the definition of that. Our entire lives.
4: Well, like we talked about earlier, it was on AFI's. It was number one on AFI's greatest films of all time, and Sight and Sound. That's and like S- yeah, yeah, that's like
0: double you know certification. <laughs> And it was until recently uh, at the top of Rotten Tomatoes list as well until someone dug up an old review and it got knocked down by Paddington 2. Paddington. <laughs> and then that got knocked down by Toy Story 2 recently. Yeah, I saw
3: Paddington oh, 2 what? got knocked Wait, down.
0: Wait, Toy Story 2? That's, yeah.
3: That's, that's not even not the best right. Toy
0: Story. It was a Paddington hit job. Someone was mad about this. No! Show. Toy Story 3, <laughs> I, can least, I can understand. Right, at least play like Toy Story 3. So this whole episode was like, inspired like, what are movies that we personally missed? I kind of want to hear like, if anyone is like, oh, this is a first time watch for me as well, while someone else is introducing a film. But we have to start with James and Citizen Kane to wrap up this old uh, thread that we left undone. And it's so hard
4: to talk about this film. It's just like this towering achievement mm-hmm. that everyone regards as like the greatest. So it's like, where do you begin in talking about this film?
0: That's hilarious to hear because that's exactly what the movie says about uh, Charles Foster Green. Right, How do exactly. you summarize a man? <laughs> like, a man's <laughs> life.
4: How do you summarize a, a film's man. legacy? Well, I'll say for me personally, what kind of planted the seed to wanting to watch this was I've been watching a lot of old Dick Cavett uh, interviews, popular talk show host from the 70s, and he had Orson Welles on a lot. And... Uh, I just fell in love with Orson Welles as like a person. Uh, He is so charismatic and he has such great stories. You know, he told the story in the Dick Cavett show about how he met Hitler, but he thought like Hitler was kind of like a douche and wasn't that interesting (laughs) of a person, which is such a great take on Hitler. But so anyway, so I kind of fell in love with Orson Welles and um, realized that, holy shit, I've... Don't think I've seen any of his films, and I haven't seen Citizen Kane. What is wrong with me? So, yeah, I kind of was a little invested in this film, and, you noticed know, a little bit of history about Citizen Kane. It's like, after War of the Worlds, which is very successful, the studio basically gave him free creative reign. Final cut, do whatever you want, and he brought all these actors from his theater company. And, you know, it's his first time directing, and he essentially did not know what he was doing. He didn't know what rules there were to break or not break. So I think that's part of maybe why this is considered the greatest in that it uses techniques that were just unheard of before, and we kind of take them for granted. But anyway, the the movie itself is about this fictional, was it Charles Foster Kane, who's like this big newspaper magnet um and it's kind of you know this newspaper guy is trying to figure out what did his last words mean rosebud what like if we can figure out what rosebud is that's gonna like tell the story of his life and the film just goes around him interviewing different people from kane's life and they each kind of give a different glimpse into parts of his life and personality and ultimately he never actually finds out what rosebud is But we, the viewer, do at the very end. It's like this iconic moment.
0: Probably the most spread around spoiler in the history of movies. Like Everyone knows that, whether or not you've seen the movie. Yeah.
4: So, watching it now, I think what I was personally kind of blown away by was when I watch older films, like this was made, I think, 1941, Mm -hmm. like old films feel old. Like the way they're shot, um, the way the story is told, you're like... Okay, yeah, this movie definitely came out in like the 50s or earlier. But there is something going on in Citizen Kane with like not only the camera techniques and the cinematography, but the way the story is told kind of out of chronological order, the way it focuses on like an anti hero and their like kind of internal complex world, and the whole idea, you know, you can't really know a character. This felt very modern in a way that some of the other movies we're going to talk about that even came out after Mm -hmm. didn't feel as modern. And I think that is like the kind of core argument for why this is the greatest film. And I, I started thinking about personal favorites for me that I would consider my personal greatest films. And every single one of them owes some debt to Citizen Kane. Even if it's like, you know, something like Pulp Fiction where it's, telling the story out of chronological order, like, that's exactly what he already did in
0: Citizen Kane, like... Even Rashomon came out after this. You know? Rashomon, yeah. That's the it's yeah. credited for that kind of, like, you know, personal anecdotes. Um. Mm-hmm. And look, like, I... It's not,
4: like, a personal favorite. I don't think anyone that says Citizen Kane is the greatest, it's not, like, a personal thing. It's just, like, you have to take it into account with the history of cinema, and all modern films are kind of based off of the core camera techniques, storytelling devices that happen in Citizen Kane. And that's pretty remarkable.
1: Yeah. And I think you pointed out too, I mean, another movie we watched for this podcast, Maltese Falcon, those were both filmed in 1941. Mm -hmm. And when I watched Maltese Falcon, I could tell it was from the forties. Like this feels like a movie from the forties. And with Citizen Kane, you know, obviously it's an older movie, but you can't like, I couldn't exactly pinpoint when it was filmed and it didn't feel, it felt so much more modern than the Maltese Falcon.
0: It's like the first modern film. Yeah. Especially like that first opening narration where you get the entirety of his life in like single newsreel Mm -hmm. and it just is rapid fire information. And you're like, okay, that was the entire film, like birth to death. What Charles Foster Kane was, (laughs) what do we do from here? That's like three minutes into the movie Uh, And then you go back and sort of picking apart and, like, kind of getting into the idea that you can't really sum up someone's life Mm -hmm. um, in a single piece of work. That is very different from, like, how uh, Maltese Falcon feels. I mean, I don't want to get into that too early, but, like, that movie's very Mm stagey. And it feels like a lot of movies before this are trying to translate, understandably, what, like, live theater and, like, stage work felt like. To the big screen, like you're just like kind of filming plays mm-hmm. and not really using the art form for what it's good right. for.
1: Well, and it's funny too that, that Orson Welles came from theater and all of the actors came from theater, and yet it he is using film to its best advantage, you know. And my so I, this is the first time I've seen Citizen Kane, and the idea that I carried around with me was this is the greatest movie of all time, and it is just boring. It's just a boring movie. Nobody, <laughs> nobody actually likes this movie. Um, nobody can get through it. Like you'll fall asleep. And like, like I had in my head that it was three hours long and just, it, it wasn't, it would be an impossible slog, but it's, it's two hours and Orson Welles uses all of these techniques to actually pretty efficiently communicate the uh, Charles Foster, um, Kane's life. Like there are these two mont or two cuts Um, One of them is when he's basically buying the staff from the Inquirer, and they're looking at a photo of the Inquirer staff, and then that photo blends into um, all of the Inquirer staff that now he has purchased for his newspaper. I I had
4: to rewind that shit, because I was like, that,
1: even by like 2021
4: standard, that's a fucking cool shot. Yeah, it's a beautiful- I don't know how you pulled that off.
1: Right. It's a beautiful dissolve, and that- just so so you see his intention to purchase this stellar news team and then it's like in in a second all of that work has been done it's 5 years later and he has the staff and then that montage w- between him and his first wife it's like their first night together or first breakfast together after they're married and they're happy and then it cuts to maybe a year later and their relationship is deteriorating they're still at the the breakfast table and in you know two minutes, we see their relationship go from newlyweds to like crumbling yeah. disarray, like distanced at the table. So my um, preconceptions about Citizen Kane were totally challenged.
4: Well, and that dinner scene or breakfast scene is such a great example of why this is great. Is that just the idea of like a montage mm-hmm. had not really been done in that way. And we take montages for granted. Mm -hmm. I mean, all the time in every sports movie, there's a montage. And like Brandon was saying, that is the power of film. Like there's things you can do in film that aren't related to like a stage play. And that's one of them, the way you can play with time. Yeah. And I think a lot of credit also needs to be given. I think his name is Greg Toland, who's a cinematographer. Mm -hmm. And from what I was reading, like Greg Toland, like kind of wanted to experiment with a lot of this stuff and, because Orson Welles was so green he was just like yeah oh sure let's try it whatever you want to do let's try it and it has that
0: experimental thing going on and that intense deep focus is what most people like yeah. single out right. everything in the frame is in focus right. no matter how far away it is from camera
4: and there's some great sh- like I love that shot or that scene where um he's getting adopted and oh
0: that shot's amazing and yeah
4: and like Kane is like a young boy and you see him in the background mm-hmm. like playing in the snow mm-hmm. and you also see the action in the foreground where they're like kind of negotiating his like guardianship and he was all given sort...
3: to a banker yeah right <laughs> but I, that was probably one of my favorite like visual Scenes in the movie because it was, just, I thought it was just so cool because of like how dark, like that snowy, like sky is. I mean, that, and I also loved all like the Susan jigsaw puzzle stuff. Oh, yeah. oh my God. I was
0: yeah. living for it. There's another shot of um, the camera going through the advertisement for Susan's like nightclub. Oh, um, it goes, it goes yeah, through under the, the skylight, through the letters. Yeah. And I'm like, I not still don't know how they did that. I am actually. flying, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah, it's cool.
4: And in that, um, that scene you know, where they're negotiating his guardianship, I was reading that because the camera kind of pulls back and then you're, like, on the other side of a table. Yeah. like, how the hell did you, like, you physically can't do that, but apparently they just made a table that was, like, cut in two. (laughs) Yeah. And then when the camera got on the other side, they closed it together and the actor sat down. Like, that sort of staging is, like, it's still remarkable yeah. to this day. And
0: in the '40s, the cameras were like way heavier and right. larger than they are now. Like that's yeah. what adds all, to that like confusion. And all the, the camera movements are
4: like smooth, yeah. Too. Uh, again, greatest film of all time. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think
0: it's up there. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> you close. put it in
4: that context, like I don't know. It, it's kind of hard to argue
3: against it when you. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Was this the first time watch for you, Brittany, as well? Um, we, whenever we were learning about like Huey P. Long in school, we watched this movie. <laughs> that makes sense. It's kind of like a
0: oh. um, showman in the same way. Yeah.
3: So we, the only thing I really remember is just like when he, which I have more to say about for sure, is whenever he was running to be um like governor of New York, like that campaign, I remember that was like the only thing I really remembered from it. But yeah, something that I like never really paid attention to in movies that I paid attention to in this movie is like the use of sound especially like when they're at xanadu that those scenes of and i've talked about it before because they're my favorite of susan doing all her jigsaw puzzles you can hear these like insane echoes and it makes it feel Mm. like this is a palace like you feel like i mean it was probably just like just some you know strewn up set but like just there was this massive massive mantelpiece and they're kind of They felt so far apart from each other, too, because they were both, like, just yelling and you could hear these echoes. And I'm like, are y'all in, like, a cave? (laughs) Um, The clapping for Susan at her, like, performances where you would just hear this tiny little clap at the end where you're like, oh, it's sad, just like her singing career
0: that scene um, is fucking hilarious, too. Oh. <laughs> when he's, like, emphatically clapping. Yeah. Um, yes. It's, like, yes. heartbreaking for her. Like, I I, I feel that pathos. i like, oh, Poor how Susan. embarrassing. Right. But his enthusiasm, like, trying to get everyone to, like, give her a standing right. ovation is actually funny. And there's
3: that use of sound, again. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I did love... Two, which I wasn't expecting is how interactive it felt because you're basically I can't remember the reporter's name offhand, but you you feel like you're playing him because you don't really see him that often. A lot of times you kind of just see the back of his head and you're kind of looking at everything through his lens. So it's almost like you're trying to solve this you know, Rosebud mystery too. But as I was watching this movie, I'm like, God, this feels super familiar. And I mean, I'm sure you guys felt it too, but like, it's it's like, this is so Donald Trump. (laughs) And this is one of his favorite, this is is Donald Trump's favorite movie of all time. And what made me think of Donald Trump is whenever he's running for governor of New York, like he's this big New York hotshot and he moves to Florida. And I'm like, this sounds so familiar to this like, you know, ridiculous, you know, stupid ass mansion. And I'm like, God, this is so Mar-a-Lago. Like, there were a lot of similarities where I mean obviously Trump is an idiot so he didn't get the gist of what this movie is so he, I guess he's like I'll just become this person that's an asshole in this movie
0: you know what I mean it's so hard to picture him watching a movie <laughs> like, much less Citizen Kane I thought
3: that was so weird but yeah if it, it felt a lot like that been, and the lock him up like whenever he was like you know doing like the mm-hmm. lock him up style chant and, like, I'm not a sleazy politician. Like, it was so crazy.
1: Well, and then they have the two uh, different versions of the newspaper that they're gonna run after the election, and one of them says, like, Kane wins. And and they say, well, we can't run this one. We have to run the other one. The, the other one says, like, fraud at the voting booth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's,
3: so, it's so on point, and it's insane that this was like, you know, 1941, and obviously reflecting on an earlier time, too. But I'm like, God, this is just... It's so stupid how similar it is, and I hate it. Well, I
4: love, too, the the kind of story where, you know, <laughs> it's kind of based on William Randolph Hearst, mm-hmm. who was this yeah. big newspaper guy. And he, like, actively, <laughs> politically, like, tried to shut this movie down. His strength. Right? Used, like, all his power. And uh, did, like, I think, tarnish its success early
0: on. Yeah. i need to talk about the reception of the film, for sure. Yeah. Uh, the, the funny thing to me is, like, I was... um all these movies we picked today—I know I picked one I had not seen before, but otherwise, I had seen all of these since we started the blog. Like, so all within the last, I think, six years we've been doing this. So these are relatively new to me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went back and read my review for *Citizen Kane* from like 2015, and uh, I mentioned uh, both Donald Trump and Kanye West as like the yeah. modern <laughs> *Citizen Kanes*. Oh my god! And they both definitely tried it's... to run for president after the fact. Uh, yes. <laughs> one of them more successfully than the other, unfortunately. But, yeah. Uh,
3: ugh it's so it's so it was so strange yeah um i guess there's always gonna be just stupid rich people out there just showmen i mean mean, the political
0: like landscape is vulnerable to theatricality i wish uh, it was more theatrical though yeah if
3: if if it's gonna exist like be more razzle dazzle more (laughs) More cabaret which we'll talk about later like i'd rather that
0: (laughs) I do want to talk about, like, the reception of this movie because we are living in a time where we've heard literally our entire lives, like, what is synonymous with great movie? Citizen Kane. Like, if someone criticizes a Marvel film, you know, there will automatically be comments where it's like, well, it wasn't supposed to be Citizen Kane, you know? Like, it was supposed to be, like, fun entertainment. This movie was controversial when it came out. We don't really hear that very often. Like, in 1941, it was... Critically divided. There were a lot of people who loved it. A lot of people who thought it was crap. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was booed at the Oscars every time its nominations mm-hmm. were announced. People were, like, audibly booing it.
3: Yeah, it was, it was nominated for, like, a lot. But I think it only it only took home, like, the screenplay or <laughs> Maybe something. Maybe editing. Or something like yeah. that.
0: Yeah. And, um... <laughs> that was another funny factoid. Was that Mank? That uh, David, um... Fincher movie from last year that's about Citizen Kane Uh has more Oscars than Citizen Ah! Kane does. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) And that movie's kind of a punchline, just kind of hilarious. (laughs) So I just think it's funny, like, you think about these movies that are now sort of understood to be impeccable and, like, unimpeachable. It almost disappeared, like, from 1941 until, I think, the Mm mid-50s. It was out of circulation, largely because of William Randolph Hearst, like, kind of tarnishing its name. Other people thinking that it was just a lot of flash with no substance. Mm-hmm. And then by the mid-50s, there's some French critics who revived it. And then it started playing on TV a lot. And that's when people were like, oh, this movie is actually sure. really wonderful to look at. <laughs> and to um, Hada's point earlier, like, way more entertaining than you would think. Like, yeah. It's very mm-hmm. rapid and, like, stylistic and, like, really goes for it in every frame like it's just a really beautiful film and and wildly entertaining yeah
1: yeah, some of the shots i mean the composition in some of the shots is just gorgeous and i think you mentioned this in your review too brandon those shots at the end of um that just kind of pan over like five warehouses worth of statues and precious art i mean it's just gorgeous the visual quality is just kind of, like, luscious and tactile, even though it's in black and white. I mean, it's just beautiful. And
4: another great shot that I liked was, I think he's talking to his business associates, and he, because of the deep focus, like, he walks to, like, a window, and he gets, like, smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. And it, then he's, like, a tiny little man. Yeah. And he comes back into focus, like, I don't know, stuff like that was still doing it for me (laughs) my
1: mom used to teach Citizen Kane in her um, film class Mm. in high school and that she talked about that moment specifically like she would like his size decreasing is like paralleling his his insignificance
4: yeah you compare that to the the political rally scene where it's shot like shooting him from underneath Mm -hmm. he looks so powerful and he's got the picture of himself and you know the way the film works with like shadows
0: too with the light yeah the low angles thing is funny because i was reading about like okay you hear you know the cinematography was revolutionary you're like okay what exactly does that mean right part of it was those low angles they wanted to shoot from so low that they had to build ceilings for the set yeah which was unheard of in hollywood they're like you don't need a ceiling for a set that's where the lights and the microphones go It's like, no, like, rooms have ceilings. We want to see the ceiling from the floor. Well, also, they Uh, had to cut
4: holes in the floor. So they had to be, like, in the floor itself. To get lower. To get even (laughs) lower. Like, yeah, stuff like that. Like, you know, a more established director probably would have said, no, that's crazy. But I like that Orson Welles just went with it. And
0: he paid the price for that. Like, it was hard for him to make movies like this in America in the studio system after the fact. Because they were like... You threw a bunch of money and like crazy ideas on the screen. We didn't make back our money at the box office, and half the critics out there think this is a joke. So, like, (laughs) what was your return on investment? And to my, you know, detriment myself, I have not since 2015 sought out more Orson Welles movies. Like, I should have seen F is for Fake by now, and I haven't made the effort. Mm -hmm. I really want to see that one. Yeah. Um, so I'm so guilty of like dismissing him, uh, you know. <laughs> the over only half other simulator. like
3: yeah. Orson Welles thing I think I've seen would be uh, well, like his voice in Transformers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's like it. He shows up in a Muppet movie. I- I've seen the Third Man. Remember. I haven't seen it. Uh, I've of seen the Third Man. It's I great. mean, I've seen him more as an actor than a director. Honestly, yeah. yeah.
4: He does have a wonderful voice. Oh, it's yeah. velvet. His voice is so smooth. Oh my god, when you see him in interviews, like, that's a fucking man's voice right mm-hmm. there. Just like, velvety, silky smooth, deep
0: baritone. I did watch um, his Lost film that Peter Bogdanovich restored. Yeah. Yeah. You liked it, right? It was interesting, yeah. Um, there's a strap-on scene, like, early in the film. I was like, what yeah, an old nice. man pervert. I love this guy. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm a
4: huge Orson Welles fan, like I said, as a person.
0: Yeah. Uh, it makes me want to like seek out more of his late period stuff too. Cause obviously he was really into like smut mm-hmm. as he got older, which I don't think you would guess from this movie. Even though it feels modern, it's not very erotic. I
3: guess everyone grows up to be a dirty old man at some point. Oh, God.
0: Gotta love Money, 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 money. If you happen to be rich money, you feel like a money, money, a money, money, you money, money, for money, money, If you happen to be rich and alone And you need a money, money, you can ring money, for some If you happen to be rich you find
4: You are left by your lover And you money, and you money, fight a lot You can take it on the gin-collar cap And
1: begin to recover on your money, money, money what?
2: Money makes up, we go out, the world, go out, the world, go out, Money makes up, go out, the sun we both are sure on being poor. Money money
3: money. Money money money. Money money, 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 money. The other movie that we all watched that I picked was uh, The Maltese Falcon, which is also from 1941. This was directed by John Huston, huge fan of his daughter. <laughs> um, more so than him. <laughs> but this was his like directorial debut. And hey, it's it's pretty good, um considering. This is actually um the third version of this film. There's a film a version that came out in like nineteen 19- thirty Thirty-one mm-hmm. of the same name and then there's one that came out in 1936 starring Betty Davis hell yeah oh, yes I and it's like Satan Met a Lady is the name of it um and it's supposed to be like a, a Betty Davis comedy which I don't know how that they could spin the Maltese Falcons like subject matter into a comedy I, guess I don't know, I this movie's hilarious I thought, <laughs> <you> know, like, <laughs> I thought it
1: was pretty fun but
3: um I would, I would love to see the Betty Davis one and but the, the, the first two films are um, I hear, I haven't watched either one of them, but they're more like centered around the female, the main female character, uh, more so than uh, the detective character played by Mr. Humphrey Bogart in this version. Well, Humphrey Bogart plays Sam Spade, which is the most detective name ever. I
0: love it. That's some noir shit right there. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes.
3: So he's a detective in San Francisco um, and he gets caught up in this case that involves a woman who, like, is this, you know, kind of beautiful, mysterious woman who shows up and, like, her story constantly changes. So does her name. Um, (laughs) It changes a couple of times from, like, Miss, like, Wonderly to Miss, oh, Shaughnessy and maybe something else in between. Well, he gets involved with her. Like, she goes to him and his partner, uh, Miles Archer, for assistance with a fake story. And Sam Spade becomes involved with this woman intensely, as well as a mystery around the Maltese Falcon, which is this Falcon figure. And I think it's like 400 something years old. And it's just adorned in jewels. And he gets swept up into this. And I don't know, like the story there's a lot of mystery to it and a lot of characters that pop up. One, one character in particular I wanted to bring up is Casper Gutman. He's played by Sydney Greenstreet. And this Sydney Greenstreet character was used as inspiration for our last movie of the month. Um, Trouble in Mind. Trouble in Mind. Yeah. The one I picked that I couldn't remember the name of it. <laughs> um, hilly Blue was modeled after that character. And now that you've seen it, you can see like, I'm like, Oh, this is so Hilly Blue. Like, yeah. you know, this guy with this like huge gut, and like he puts his like you know hands on top of his gut to make it look even more like pushed <laughs> out. Um, I love how
0: amused he is by Humphrey Bogart. He's like, "Oh, you're such a character. <laughs> no, uh, you're my kind of-, kind of man." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he doesn't mean what he's saying. He like actually is very annoyed by him. <laughs> so I, what
3: happens is within like the first few minutes of the movie, his partner um, Miles Archer is shot dead. So is this guy Thursby. That the female character.
0: The femme fatale.
3: Yeah, I'm like, I'm, I, we'll call her, I don't know, Miss Wanderly. her first name she said. <laughs> the femme fatale. So, um, the guy that she was after, so she basically made up the story in the beginning and is like, oh, my sister's with this like horrible person. I need you to help me find my sister. Um, turns out that this like guy that was supposed to be like the dude her sister was with, she was involved with him and they were stealing the Maltese Falcon because it's worth a shit ton of money. So, Miles and Thursby both get shot and they're the cops kind of are curious about Sam Spade and they kind of look at him as a suspect of his partner's death. And it makes sense because one, he's having an affair with his partner's wife and right after his partner dies, he's like, yeah, you can go ahead and scrape his name off all the doors. (laughs) (laughs) So Sam Spade shows no emotion and I find his character to be super, super interesting Because in the beginning, I'm like, oh, he's a bad guy, right? Like, he's kind of shitty. His friend is murdered. And he's like, oh, well, let's go scrape off the name on the windows, you know? That's, like, the first thing he thinks of. And
0: he's more concerned about um, the fact that he's fucking that guy's wife and has to, like, um, cut off that relationship.
3: But then he, like... (laughs) doesn't even care about the wife that much no, either. He's,
0: it's more like an inconvenience. Like, oh, no, I gotta break it off with this wife. Exactly. Yeah.
3: So, and that's like his attitude. But the ending of this movie, he is like a totally different person. Which, like, I'm like, was he like that all along? And the more I kind of looked into it, the reason he becomes like, I guess we could spoil the ending a little bit. He becomes like a good guy because he's like, well, it turns out that Miss O'Shaughnessy... Wonderly that she killed Miles his partner and he's just like well I guess I gotta turn you into the police and do the right thing like he becomes a stand up guy in the end and it was cause of I don't know what the name of the code was but just that code in film code, yeah. yeah where you like you this main character that you're building as a hero mm-hmm. has to do something upstanding at the end and can't get away with like being a criminal. Yeah. And that's kind of what happens in this movie, which I think is so funny.
0: They either have to learn a lesson by becoming good or they have to get punished for being bad. Right.
3: Yeah. And, but, the, but it's like, when did he learn the lesson? He never <laughs> learned it. It just, he just had a change of heart randomly for no reason at the end. But yeah, also I love how his his character is like kind of like anti-gun. Um, he's like ah, now I'm never bring a gun to a fight. Like, and every time somebody shows up in a scene with a gun, he just like slaps it out their hand.
0: <laughs> like he's really good at disarming those who are armed with guns. His, his main weapon is talking. Yes, yeah, people back him in a corner is like every scene in this movie, and he just does that fast, rapid fire Humphrey Bogart like joking. Um it's like very sarcastic the entire film.
3: Just gets himself out of it. And everything. he gets himself out of every corner yeah.
0: with that with that weapon. And he's yeah. hilarious. Oh, yeah. he
3: is so good in this movie. Um quintessential Humphrey Bogart, I think every time you hear people like mimic him or talk about him, it's it's like Sam Spade, It's the yeah. Sam Spade character, and he does it so well.
4: I love too like his dynamic with the O'Shaughnessy right. character oh my God. Over, like She's, you know, she's trying to plot or whatever, and he just calls her out on her shit yeah. <laughs> constantly, and like
3: <laughs> he never, like I really don't it's, think he ever believed anything no, she said. No, that
4: was
1: my period. favorite part of this yeah, movie. where
4: he's, she he's like. <laughs> No, you're, you're lying. Right. And she's, she's
1: like, like, yes, I'm lying, but uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. this... Uh... <laughs> right. And even at the end, it's like, she's like, no, I never did anything. And he's like, no, you shot my partner. She's like, ah, but well, he couldn't have meant that much to you. What are you doing to me? I've been nothing but truthful from the moment you met me. And he's like, you've lied... Every moment that we've been together, Which I guess it's like he's a good detective in the sense that right. he's pushing the truth. Right, he's like I never lying, believed
0: anything. But he's a so bad that. detective because he knows that she's lying and right. he's around because he thinks it's hilarious that she's
3: lying to him. So <laughs> I'm like, what is he getting out of this? I'm he like, this he- funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Because I'm like, uh, obviously he might care about the money a little bit, but then he doesn't. Like, I laugh so hard whenever he was like, "All right, five hundred bucks," and she's like. Okay, and she gives him $400, and he's like, where's the extra hundred? Just like, what am I going to live off of? And he's like, I don't know, sell your shit. <laughs> and she gives
4: him the money. <laughs> he's like, yeah, he's like very principled, but he's also like a shyster. And his like smile. And he's all about the bottom line.
3: Right, his like smirky smile, like, <laughs> is so funny too. But yeah, like, I found it interesting in this movie, like, and we talked about it before, how it's like 1941, just like Citizen Kane. And like a big thing that happened, like... I think putting yourself in, like, the the time period that these came out, especially this movie, is interesting, because, like, uh, Pearl Harbor happened in 1941. And this movie, I, I guess, like, of course, leading up to Pearl Harbor, like, a lot of, like, Americans had this, you know, these worries, like, who do we trust? Like, what's right? What's wrong? And th- that's, like, this entire movie where you're, like, everyone's lying. Like, who's telling the truth?
0: I don't know. And then you get Peter Laurie as that European character who's, <sighs> like, Un-American and kind of a pervert. Yeah, not <laughs> like, to be trusted. Oh, yeah, oh,
3: Jack, Cairo. Oh, my God. He is so, I so creepy. Oh, he's the best part of the And movie. I love him because he's he's always sweating and he just sucks at whatever it is he's trying to do. He's not very good at being a criminal.
4: <laughs> and I guess, I guess this was like coded, our audiences back then might have known, but like the scented handkerchief and he gets mm-hmm. slapped around. It's obviously like kind of a homophobic... What? When he's They're first introduced,
0: up. he's playing with the handle on his walking cane around his mouth as if he's like slapping a dick <laughs> on his own cheek. <laughs> so it is actually, so actually, <laughs> If
3: I'm if I'm not mistaken, like as I was kind of digging into this a little bit, it's this is based on a novel of the same name, yeah. and in the novel, he him and the fat man or or homosexual. Oh, that okay. makes sense. Well, that yeah. does make sense. They just didn't, I guess, because of code. They didn't explicitly mm-hmm. say it, but no, I yeah. kind of picked up on some vibes. Yeah, yeah. I would have loved to have seen like any kind of intimacy between those two characters. Then. Yeah,
4: like Humphrey Bogart, you like smells the handkerchief and then he just starts slapping him around.
3: He calls him <laughs> like there's a word that
4: scene where he like pulling out his gun and Bogart
0: just like he kind of says you'll get slapped and you'll <laughs> like it.
3: <Yes. laughs> I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you're gonna stop, you're gonna like it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he does call him like a homophobic like slur at one point that's i can't think of the word and i'm not gonna say it but um it's a german word
0: mm, um, okay. that he
3: says because he said it and i was like what is that word like I, and then yeah but so. i don't
0: know if it's because like peter laurie was introduced to us through looney tunes cartoons mostly like as a kid would just but, like,
3: the- <laughs> wasn't he like smoking a lot yeah it? he
0: was always smoking wearing a tuxedo <laughs> yeah i just find him adorable like i thought like even in m where he's supposed to be this like child killer like, that's what i was pervert. gonna
4: say like have you not seen him in m he's yeah he's
0: terrifying he's terrifying in <laughs> that but then watching him in this he's supposed to be just as creepy and i just i was like oh, I, I, I liked him in <laughs> yeah. this. and also
3: he looks like extra tiny um because like humphrey bogart is a pretty tiny dude um and he kind of looks a little taller in here i guess because like Every other character has their pants pulled up to, like, right under their chest to make them look (laughs) shorter. But yeah, he looked even tinier in this movie, probably because of the pants and also the slapping of the guns out of his little hands. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I I liked it. I mean, this movie is obviously, like, that, you know, quintessential, like, noir movie that um, kind of put a spark in that genre. And, like, a bunch of movies came out, like, not
0: that long after It was this. the first major studio noir. Yeah. Uh, before that, they were all, like, B-pictures. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, Roger Corman making a bunch of, like, monster movies and then Jaws coming out with, right. like, a big budget mm-hmm. version of his stuff. This right. was, like, that for noir. So a lot of, like, the tropes that we know from the genre, like, are kind of solidified by this.
1: But I, I also like that, you know, like you said, Cairo is just not very good at being... A criminal, like, none of them are that good at being,
2: cr- you know, they end, no, up, that's true. Like,
1: they end up with a falcon at the end, and it's, it's a not fake. a fake.
2: They're
3: yeah. like, ah,
1: it's just ah, shoot. Well, I think they even
3: make like a comment where they're like, wow, we should really put some more like thought into right. this. Like, <laughs> they just kind of like rushed into it, which I thought for me was really like baffling is y'all are murdering people, right? Y'all are spending all <laughs> this fucking money to get something that you don't fucking know if it truly exists or not. And then in my mind, I'm like, "Who are they even going to sell it to?" Like, isn't that
4: right? what's is it called? The MacGuffin.
0: Yeah, this, right. you know, right. this movie is like the linchpin of that. Right. Even it's though like the word all... doesn't come from it, right? Like, no, I don't think
4: so. Yeah. But I thought it was a Hitchcock term. Yeah, but, but...
0: this movie's like supposedly like the main example of that trope. Is... Yeah, they're all
4: chasing a thing that they don't. Right. That isn't even real, but it's just the point of the so, plot. Right.
1: And then at the end, I mean, they're not even really devastated. They're like ah, oh, shoot, and then got like, go well, all right. right. This, he trying, I guess. Yeah. And then um, he's like, oh, arrest all these people. Yeah,
3: there really were, like, Maltese Falcons, though. I didn't know those real thing. Oh. In Malta. Mm. I don't know that either. Yeah. I, I don't mean, know if I, people I, did this to get them.
4: But I think I with this film, I the only thing I struggled with was, like, okay, you know, we're talking about Citizen Kane, where it's obviously, like, <laughs> influential on film as a whole, and with this one, I, I get that it's, like, the first major film noir, and I love that genre, but I feel like there's so many movies that came afterwards that did it much better. Oh, and movies before, too. Like, I, I don't want to one. dismiss
0: the Poverty Row, like, cheapo version of that. Yeah. Like, a yeah. lot of those movies have German expressionist um, directors who moved here after, like, Nazi like occupation uh-huh. that came to America made cheap genre pictures and basically like, transformed the art form here and, like, mm-hmm. you know, did, like, really crazy stylistic stuff. This movie doesn't have a lot of that. Like, it doesn't have the German expressionist like shadow play or like. I mean, it's got
4: the really talky, fast, yeah. lingo thing, which is like very entertaining. It's Fun. It, it is fun. I think out of like these like classic ones, this is the one film that like I didn't give five stars to. Mm-hmm. I,
2: hot take. Yeah. <laughs> I kind yeah. of and 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 weird because it's like yeah, no, i yeah, no, like, show you. <laughs>
4: <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like a genre picture, and I don't feel like it's the best example of the genre that yeah. it kind of not created but
3: I know, made but mainstream. It was like good for the genre, but like I've looked at it as more of like what set off like Humphrey Bogart's career, well, more yeah, than anything. And what's... I can't remember the name of the actor, but there is an actor who turned down this role because he didn't think he'd make enough. Hmm. And it's the same guy who also turned down the role in Casablanca. Wow. wow. Big I'm wow. like, big mistake. You Huge. Man, decisions. <laughs> that was Humphrey Bogart's, like, pretty woman moment. So <laughs> well, this is, like, I think his favorite movie. Like, he kept searching for his, his next Maltese Falcon as he kept taking on roles. But I think this also, like, brings everything back to a time where, like, movies kind of made actors and actors didn't make movies like nowadays. Like I feel like movies aren't deemed successful unless they have the right cast or the right big shot actors. But like back in the day, it was like these movies created these amazing actors, which I don't see it that way, but a lot of folks see it. I think that you're way. right
0: until maybe 20 years ago. Like, I, don't, I don't know that movie stars sell movies now the way they did when we were kids in the nineties.
3: I just feel like I wish I could think of examples at the top of my head, but just like, oh, so and so is in this movie and like that's like that brings people in droves to the theaters, well, but it's a piece of shit. Like movie. you talked
4: about like pretty woman and think about like a Julia Roberts. Yeah, like picture, in the nineties like, for sure. Julia yeah. Roberts mm-hmm. in the nineties, like, wow, that movie's gonna make a shit ton of money. Or even, like, a George Clooney in the 90s, like, early 2000s. I don't
0: know what sells movies now I other know, than, like, animated like, animals. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> <like> there's <laughs> any, like, 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 star on like, that Like, level. modern
3: day, like, writers and stuff, they're like, I had this person in mind when I wrote this movie. Yeah, You know what I mean? Like, oh, like, they're perfect. This role's perfect mm-hmm. for them. I'm gonna write the role around this actor. Right where like I don't think that really happened too much like back in the day. Or at least that's not what I'm picking up on. Yeah. Especially with this, like I guess looking at the Bogart relationship to this movie, how this kind of like put him on the map rather than Bogart putting the movie on the map.
4: It seemed to me like Bogart in this picture was like the archetypal archetypal like man of the nineteen forties. Very macho very it's very macho, fast talking. He definitely has ladies <laughs> interested, but right. he's like cold to them when he has to be. It's... And he's like principled <laughs> about his job. Yeah. And I don't know that, that was like interesting watching, like I'm sure a guy in the 1940s watching Maltese Falcon was like, I want to be that is Humphrey Bogart. No, like, that's it's me. It's true.
3: And it's like, what sucks is like, I mean, he's a funny dude, but who would want to aspire to be as horrible as he is? <laughs> yeah. And it's, but that's, my like, part of me is like, is that why? I, well, one of the many reasons why like men were just so terrible,
0: Anti-hero. You like, know, like, like, oh yeah. wow,
3: what a cool guy, what a cool asshole. Yeah, like <laughs> when
4: you can be cold and distant and hard and but like kind of sarcastic and yeah, I yeah. don't know. It's funny how that changes no, over yeah. time. Yeah,
1: I don't know. I mean, I think the thing that surprised me the most is that like this felt to me more like a farce than I expected it mm-hmm. to. Like it re- honestly reminded me. I mean, obviously not. To the nth degree, but of like the big Lebowski, a little bit, and like inherent vice, like these movies where all these things are happening, but like the none of the action is actually taken seriously. And... Yeah, because the
0: main character is like outside of the importance of it, he, right? Like, kind of finds it amusing or annoying, yeah, uh, sometimes both, <laughs>
1: yeah, and like people are dying, but also like people are dying for this thing that isn't even and, and then. Once it's revealed that it's like they totally failed, it's like okay, well, on to the next. Like, obviously, like they're gonna fail again. They're just gonna 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 keep roaming around. Falcon, right? (laughs) Yeah, and even um, Humphrey Bogart. I mean, he is this macho. I mean, interesting guy. But I felt like his disloyalty to his partner also makes him kind of like a a farcical. Yeah, he's just an asshole. Right, and it's not just like ah, he's a you know, he's an asshole. And, like, women love him, but he he doesn't care about them, but he's, like, loyal to his fellow men. He's just kind of, like, he's just a dick. He's not
2: loyal to his fellow... He he,
3: seemed to have, like, a cool, interesting relationship, maybe loyal with his secretary. Yeah. Yeah, that's That's true. she she basically
4: is, like, the perfect woman for him in that she, like, deals with his crap.
2: Yeah. You know,
4: but doesn't, like, give him shit for it. She kind of accepts him. Right. And, again, I feel like that fits in with, like, the perfect man yeah. of the 1940s. Like, you just gotta find a secretary that you mm-hmm. can <laughs> screw and they're not gonna give you shit and they understand okay. who you are. Ah,
1: post up this woman in your house, for, in your house for two but, weeks. like, switch no. a couple of cabs the way home. Right, and then she, like, never shows up anyway.
0: Yeah. I definitely agree, like, watching this movie after Citizen Kane, it's like, I feel like I'm kind of regressing back to like stage quality like production Mm -hmm. welcome back um yeah so i'm thinking like okay i gave both of those movies five stars when i first watched them even though this one isn't as trying as hard with the cinematography it was praised a lot for like its camera movements and like um setups but after watching citizen kane it's like i don't know right (laughs) it's not trying Uh, that hard yeah i think really what made this for me when i first saw it was i saw it at britannia they do this like classic movie series 10 a.m. every Sunday. Um, I saw it with a crowd. And it was just so funny. Like, yeah. I just laughed, like, through half of the film. There are a couple quiet moments where he's, like, trying to actually figure out the mystery. But for the most part, he's just mm-hmm. joking so fast. And every line, like, lands. It reminds me so much of Bugs Bunny. Um, right. <laughs> and, like, reading about the inspiration for Bugs Bunny, Clark Gable is more, like, the reference that people go for. But, like, I really feel like this kind of rapid-fire sarcasm and, like, yeah. You know, Elmer Fudd is, like, trying to murder him for sport, and he just, like, laughs in his face and, like, talks his way out of it over and over again. That's what Humphrey Bogart is God, doing in this movie. Yeah, this
3: mm-hmm. movie is very Elmer Fudd-Bugs Bunny. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny,
0: just like Bugs Bunny. Oh, yeah, totally. funny. yeah, yeah.
3: Well, it sounds like we'd all be fans of, like, When Satan Met a Lady, the, co- the Betty Davis comedy. <laughs>
0: I'll watch anything with Betty Davis yeah. in Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that kind of bleeds right into my point for our next movie as well, which was Sunset Boulevard from 1950, a film I had never seen until recently. I don't know why I picked this one. I think my original pick was Black Narcissus, which I still need to watch. But I think we were like all kind of stuck to American films. I was thinking like American mainstream movies that are like important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Sunset Boulevard. What really struck me watching it was like uh, Gloria Swanson in this film. She's a aged nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, like silent movie star who's, like, kind of rotted away in this, like, old dark house setting, like, this kind of dusty old Hollywood mansion. Um, And she is, like, a total terror and a bully to everyone around her and emotionally manipulates and, like, is screechy and scary and pure drag. Like, it's like a drag (laughs) over-the-top performance. And it's impossible not to think about Betty Davis in whatever happened to Baby Jane in the early 60s. Oh, God, yeah. And... Whatever happened to Baby Jane is the definitive psychobiddy. Like every psychobiddy <laughs> movie that came after it can't talk about it without referencing Baby Jane. And I did not know going into this that I would watch a film that was Baby Jane a decade earlier. Like it's there. so similar.
3: We're yeah, we shouldn't be looking for the psychobiddy's pokes Baby Jane. Like just to know there's a world of them waiting for us. Before. <laughs> Before. <I> yeah. Mean.
0: <laughs> that reminds me of, um, we, we talked about this Laurie Anderson movie a while ago, you, mean and James, where um, she's talking about her dog, mm-hmm. and the dog's like always scouting the ground looking for threats, and then it finds a hawk in the sky, and it's like, oh, there's this whole other area I should have been keeping my eye on. <laughs> yeah, there is like a pre-Baby Jane Psychobitty <laughs> vibe yeah. out there. Um, yeah. At least <laughs> represented in this film. Um <laughs> So the the movie feels like it was written for Gloria Swanson. Um, Billy Wilder is a German transplant um, who came to old Hollywood and was looking at all of these mansions occupied by these old, you know, film stars from like 30 years before who like were out of work. Um, the men continued to work and go on like there's, there's a set visit to a Cecil B. DeMille movie in this movie production in this movie. And Eric von Stronheim plays a uh, butler character in the film, which is very funny. So the men continue to work into old age, but the women are kind of forgotten. The, the actresses who were like the titans of the industry and are allowed to rot in like isolation and loneliness. The film is narrated as, as if it were a noir. This uh, hack screenwriter <laughs> is introduced as a dead body floating in a pool at the old mansion. And he's like you're probably wondering how I got here for like a record scratch. (laughs) 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 And then we dial back like Citizen Kane to the beginning and like retell his story of um, decline where he took a job by happenstance because he was dead broke and avoiding creditors, writing a screenplay for an adaptation of Salome for um, Gloria Swanson's more or less playing herself in the film. She's like out of work, silent film actor who doesn't know how to adapt her art form to talkies Especially now that she's not twenty years old anymore, um, and she still wants to play Salome herself, and like wants to play like a twenty-year-old in this like screenplay she's writing. He takes the job just for the money. He's kind of humoring her. The setting is very spooky in like kind of a funny way. Like there's an old pipe organ that you'll hear playing in the background, and she's like, "Oh, it's just drafty in here. Those old pipes are really annoying. So the wind's like blowing through them, making it sound like a horror movie." She is so large and so loud and so obnoxious in this film, and bullies around this man who's like 20 or 30 years younger than her, sometimes manipulatively like pretending she's going to kill himself if he leaves and abandons the project, Uh, and that's when he first starts having sex with her is after the suicide threat, which is fucked up. Um, And then sometimes um, just sort of like having fun and living her fantasy that she's still on the top of her game and that people still want and adore her and Mm -hmm. are sending her fan letters all the time she's like living in this like fantasy bubble when he first meets her he's like uh this is like the best line read in the movie when movie really scream at the screen where he's like you used to be big in pictures huh and she goes yeah i'm still am big it's the pictures that got small (laughs) Uh, which is just pure drag oh yeah uh i just love everything about this movie i can't believe it took me this long to watch it was this the first time watched for anyone else or was it just me
3: it was my first time watch.
0: What, did it hit you in the same way? I know we share a love for Psycho Bitty. Oh, yeah. Exploitation films.
3: I was obsessed obsessed with, like, Norma. Norma yes. Desmond. Norma Desmond. Oh, my God. Especially, like, whenever they're like, hey, we want to use her cool car for this movie. And then she's like, all right, beauty regimes. And she does, like, all these, like, beauty procedures to get herself oh prepped. And then, like, at night she goes to find, like, you know, her lover. She's like, don't look at me.
0: She turns Good more night. and more into like a horror villain, right? Yeah, yes. Like she has all these like surgery scars and like her face is. Lifting. And she like has
3: her tape. Yeah, and yeah. she pulls it off whenever she gets really pissed. <laughs> she's so awesome. Like I love her character, and I love how delusional she is, and how she's never not to the very end. She right. does not leave her bubble and does not get the fact that people don't care about her anymore, yes. which I think is awesome.
1: No moment of
3: self-awareness or so, self-reflection. Right. So she reminds me a lot of my cousin. <laughs> this is a fun, wow. a fun little oh, fact. Boy. So I, I texted my cousin and I'm like, have you seen Sunset Boulevard? Because like, like this woman is you. And he's like, oh, I love that movie. And actually, so he used to date this, this older gentleman who was an antique dealer. And the older gentleman bought a pet monkey after being inspired by Sunset Boulevard. Oh
0: <laughs> so first scene in the movie, the screenwriter shows up, not first scene, like early in the film, he shows up and he thinks that there's a coffin with like a dead child a baby. in it. And then he gets closer and he realizes it's her pet monkey that has passed away.
3: <laughs> so, um, so yeah, he was dating someone who uh, like amongst all his antiques, like Miss um, Norma Desmond, he also wanted a pet monkey to like, brewed with him in his like house full of antiques. Wow. And when the monkey died, he got it stuffed.
0: Fuck yeah, dude. So it's stuffed. Mm.
3: It's not in an adorned coffin. Like Did the monkey have a name? Henry.
0: Beautiful. Aww. What a handsome boy.
3: Rest <laughs> <laughs> in peace. <laughs> but I thought that was so funny. And I'm like, wow. I'm like, I love this movie, but I'm not going to get a monkey. I mean,
4: the monkey scene is a good example of so like, how funny. darkly weird... This is, like, like...
3: I was not expecting, like, the black humor. Yeah. Like that. Like, that was meant to be darkly funny.
4: Yeah, it's a fucking dead monkey that they bury in a little <laughs> coffin in the backyard. Like, like
3: the son of King Kong.
1: <laughs> and it's also, like, you know, she lost her pet monkey and now she's getting a new pet monkey. A new toy. Yeah, oh, exactly.
0: And her old toy is still hanging around um The <laughs> butler, played yeah. by Eric Strongheim, like, he is a famous director on the level of Cecil B. DeMille and he threw his career away to continue worshipping at her feet yeah. and like making sure her life is um, yeah he's kind of her Writing fixer her... Yep. yeah so Writing. there's a little bit of, like cuckold kink play in there and like right. just her whole power dynamic in that house is like very erotically charged for a movie from 1950 like we were talking about the Hays Code earlier and I guess she eventually gets punished for her crimes in the film, but she gets away with a lot before that final scene. of And she's still happy in the end. Well, oh, she loves <laughs> it.
4: like she gets punished, but it's kind of what she, she wanted, wanted this whole it, time. Yeah. She wanted
3: the she just spotlight wanted again. Someone to take her picture or put her on right. camera, and she—I mean—I'm sure, like deep down inside, she knew, but she did not get a shit.
1: I, uh, I think she had a total mental break. She's yeah. like, yeah. "I am a star now." But Look, I, I
4: think kind of like um, like we were talking about how Citizen Kane feels so modern. This felt modern to me in kind of the meta aspect where, like, you had Buster Keaton playing himself as, like, a washed-up silent
0: movie star. Cecil B. DeMille. Cecil B.
4: DeMille playing himself, who was, like, the biggest Mm -hmm. movie director at the time.
0: It's shot on the Paramount Pictures lot um, right? for a few scenes with, like, Paramount's name in big, bold letters. Like, you know where you're at.
4: Yeah, and, like, the whole thing with the washed-up movie star, like that meta kind of ironic take felt very fresh for something that came out in 1950 mm-hmm. that I appreciated. No, you're, you're right.
3: It. it is interesting. Cause it's like, how long has film been around and you're already washed up, but yeah, like it's, it's so early in like the world of like film. Well, when you're a something like that to woman, happen.
0: like sex figure icon, like you're, Shelf life is pretty short. God. Uh, So, like, I mean, even now, women in their, like, 50s and 60s struggle to find work. Well, thank God for,
3: like, this, you know, I feel like more people are into, like, the gilf life. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like hot grandmas and stuff. So it's like, I love seeing that. I'm like, great. Yes. Let's keep these women in sexy roles
0: longer. Picture that as knuckle tattoos now in Guilf Life.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Don't tempt me. I will get one. (laughs) Be like, bring them back. (laughs)
1: So I've seen Sunset Boulevard a couple of times. I actually Ooh. saw the musical too. It was like a oh, high school. Wow. It was a so high school awesome. stage production in Wisconsin, but it was good. <laughs> um, but I mean, I mean, I think, I mean, this movie is just totally delicious. And Norma Desmond is perfect. And, you know, the film revolves around her ego, her diluted ego. And, you know, everybody wants to see me and everybody loves me. But the truth is she is the best part of the movie she's totally electric and mm-hmm. i mean not because she's you know a gorgeous film star but because she just has this menacing this menacing air and i loved the details of her home she just has pictures of herself in every room just covering this huge mansion and well,
0: um, then a portrait of herself that lifts for a movie right. screen that plays for <laughs> once only on the yes. <laughs> Yeah. to her own glory. Right. Yeah. Just, I mean, she's woman. just
1: swimming in her own delusion, but she, I mean, Gloria Swanson is just totally perfect. And I think I saw Sunset Boulevard and then I saw um, whatever happened to Baby Jane and I just wanted it to be more like Sunset Boulevard. I wanted more of that camp horror. I
0: do want to talk about the difference between those two movies. Like what is it that makes Baby Jane a psycho and this like one of the best movies of all time? I think it's just budget. Like, Baby Jane is, like, yeah. a cheap exploitation picture. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it makes Crawford and Davis look a little grotesque in the role. Mm-hmm. But I think <laughs> <It's> Gloria <laughs> Swanson's pretty grotesque. grotesque as well, yeah. right? Like, yeah,
3: I guess. I guess she doesn't have, like, the powdery baby makeup. Oh, sick. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that.
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny. Like, Hollywood loves movies about Hollywood. Yeah, totally. Uh, and this movie got, like, tons of nominations and awards, where Baby Jane's kind of a joke. And, you know, I'm like drawn to low-budget exploitation filmmaking as, like, a movie nerd. Like, mm-hmm. that's my corner of movie-watching in general. Um, and it feels like this one has just a lot more prestige. So, like, exploitation could not have started with this film. This is, like, a tragic story of, like, how we've discarded our, like, actors. Right. Um, whereas Baby stars. Jane is, like, literally just using them for horror and comedy. Right. Um, I think the movie's sad, too, honestly. Oh,
3: very sad. Yeah.
0: But, I mean, with... Sunset Boulevard,
4: though, like, the character of Joe, this, like, screenwriter dude, basically takes the easy way out in the Mm -hmm. film. He just, like, instead of, like, going off of this true love and writing this, like, real screenplay, he decides, like, no, I'm going to, like, stay and live because it's, like, rent free and I get kind of taken care of and (laughs) and he gets, like, punished for it. Like, that's why you end up dead in a pool.
0: He ends up dead because he gives it up, though. He's like he sets the girl, the young girl who's like a promising writer. He sets her free. I mean, like, yeah, I'm just a gigolo for this like mm. old Cruella De yeah. prototype. Um, <laughs> but he's like, you go on, like, you don't need me. I'm basically just a whore. And then once she leaves, he, um, yeah, he's like, I'm actually done. Yeah, I'm like, gonna go to Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> and then, yeah, gets, yeah, and then he gets killed.
3: Yeah, because he like he literally throws like all this like truth that she does not want to hear. At her, like, rapid fire. And I'm like, yeah, like, shoot him, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's very,
0: like, gross in that scene. But I think he's doing a good thing, maybe. He's, like, maybe. sending her loose from whatever his deal is. He's like, I got my own life to figure out. You should go be free and then be happy yeah. with someone else. <laughs> um, I, I saw that as a selfless act Aww. myself. I, get, yeah. I mean,
4: he just, like, I don't know. He entertained it for so long because it was, like, an easy... Ride, and that's yeah. like the biggest right. sin. And it, you know, we were talking about like the meta thing, him as a screenwriter, it's almost like him taking the easy way out, writing the like cookie cutter story, and like he, I don't know, he gets punished for it. I think the harder
0: thing would have been him to, for him to commit after he confessed to himself, even like what he was doing. Mm-hmm. he finally puts in the words and he quits, I think the hard work would have been like, okay, I'm a gigolo, yeah, yeah, yeah. He like gave that up. Um, I do love like how overwritten his dialogue is, though. Like, if this is a movie about a screenwriter who kind of isn't as good as he thinks it is, like well, his like, writing the, in this film and his narration is like so overbearing. When I like,
4: normally hate that style of narrating mm-hmm. the exposition of the story, but in this it works because, like you're saying, he's a mediocre writer and he's, he's like Barton talking <laughs> over his own story, <laughs> yeah. and not even that well. So yeah,
0: I dug that. Oh, this movie had everything. It had like. Over-the-top drag personas. Mm -hmm. It's kind of horror. in like a sort of abstract sort of way, the way Norman Desmond is shot. Very funny. It's meta. It's about its own art form. So I don't know. I I just really appreciated the uh, the out-in-the-open sexual psycho thriller stuff in this film, especially between the two main leads and like... As a prototype for psychobiddy media, I can't. I mean, just have to respect it, you know. <laughs> it deserves that respect. Yeah, it really does. Like we need to we need to start looking backwards instead of forward. Like, <laughs> we, we might have tapped the uh, post Baby Jane psychobiddy, but there's more stuff. We should do like
3: because for- we did like a post Baby Jane psychobiddy episode. Maybe we should do like a pre. Mm. Uh, I'm here for it. The
1: ancient psychobiddies. <laughs> the ancients. <laughs> Alright, so um, my movie was Cabaret, which I've always wanted to watch, um, but just never got around to. Um, It was directed by Bob Fosse, the very famous um, choreographer. He's kind of famous for the, he has the, like, very kind of stilted movements and, like, jazz hands. Mm -hmm. He has a very distinctive style. Um, So Cabaret has had a couple of iterations So the original story is the semi-autobiographical series of books. Um, The last book is called Goodbye to Berlin. It was written in 1939 by Chris Isherwood. So that book was adapted into a stage play called um, I Am a Camera, which was uh, made in 1951. That was developed into the musical Cabaret and that musical cabaret was developed into the movie Cabaret, um, which was directed in 1972. Yes, 1972. So the story is has changed throughout these iterations. There are some characters that appear in one version, not the other. But Sally Bowles is um, the kind of iconic character in the 1972 um, film. is played by Liza Minnelli. I mean, it's just like a classic role. So... Cabaret is about this cabaret called The Kitty Cat Club in um, Berlin in early 1930s, uh, post-World War I, during the Weimar Republic, and it follows a uh, um, British-English teacher named Brian Roberts. He comes to Berlin. Uh, He stays in the boarding house that Sally Bowles lives in. Sally Bowles is a performer in The Kitty Cat Club. Um, and the story follows their developing relationship, as well as the rise of Nazism from about 1931 to 1933. So I never watched Cabaret because I had this idea that it was this like um, like company esque kind of musical, mm-hmm. like very much about banding together and artists um, having a great time in Berlin. Like I just didn't really know what the political um, part of the musical was and. In reality, it's, it's like a pretty dark musical about escapism and like the dream of stardom and the ways that we kind of um, alleviate ourselves from dealing with painful political circumstances. Uh, the cabaret is this kind of like dark playground where people come to forget their worries, but Nazism and fascism is always popping up. Um, In the musical numbers, in the very beginning, there's a Nazi that's kind of kicked out of the club. And at the very end, when Brian Roberts has left for England, Sally Bowles has um, established herself as continuing in the cabaret. The cabaret is filled with Nazis. So, I don't know. I really, really enjoyed this film. It was much more politically interesting than I thought it would be. Um, Liza Minnelli is an absolute star. She's kind of like this super enigmatic energetic like almost bipolar performer and i don't know i just thought it was much more interesting than i thought it was going to be i have a
0: question about her specifically up front before we get any further mm-hmm. like what else is she in like she's famous for being Judith garland's daughter right for sure i saw her in arrested development as a kid yeah that was hilarious as a kid i'm saying like 20s or yeah older. i'm watching this movie for the first time about two years ago and i'm like. I don't know if I've ever seen a Liza Minnelli film before. I've seen drag queens perform Liza Minnelli's songs more than I've seen Liza Minnelli perform her own stuff. Yeah. She's like a famous person, but I feel like this movie is it for her.
1: Right. And even, yeah, in Arrested Development, I feel like her role is like kind of the washed up version of Sally Bowles, basically. Like she's always playing that role. Yeah, Yeah. I
4: mean, I feel like this role, what struck out to me was like, this felt like, the prototype of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl... For sure. ...character. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know if it existed before this film, but I hadn't really seen it up until this point. And, like, this felt like, yeah, the prototype of that character that we've seen so many times, especially in, like, you know, the past 20 years.
0: And you know what? Nathan Rabin, coining that term, like, really, like, solidified a trope that has been repeated throughout fiction, like, probably, I mean, if not before Cabaret, at least in the years that since. Mm. sense. Yeah. But, she's awesome. <laughs> like, you no, know, she's great.
3: Her character in this movie is, like, so much like her in real life, too, which is so funny. Like, she's high energy. She is all over the place. Her parents are wealthy. <laughs> her parents are loaded. Um... Yeah, well, whenever you mention like what else was she in, and in my mind, I'm like she was in a really big movie in the '80s. What was it the couldn't uh, think.
0: Scorsese one? It's Arthur. Oh, she was his love interest. Oh, I and love now that you movie. see her, yeah, right? I
3: know because I kept thinking I'm like, there's a movie where she's like still like this character, kind of like loud all over the place. Like she's, but she's smacking bubblegum a lot in that one. Um, there's also
0: a Scorsese musical where her and Robert De Niro played New York,
3: New York. Yeah, I haven't yeah. seen that,
0: but. I think the movie is critical of her as a manic pixie dream girl in the film. Oh yeah, it's like everything she says is pure bullshit. (laughs) But like, you love her for it. Like you love her theatricality. Like when she orders caviar. Like
3: that was very that sums up that where it's just like the way she does it's so ridiculous. Well, I think that like manic
4: pixie character also is a lot about the male character as well. Where like she brings out something in him, makes him realize something about himself. He like opens up and like that kind of happens in this picture. But it's like the sexual dynamics in this are way more interesting. They're on equal footing. Right. Because he's, I guess, bisexual or fluid. And like, you know, there's that great scene where she says, you know, there's like this German uh, baron or whatever. Maximilian
0: Maximilian. Maximilian. She's like,
4: I screwed him. You know, he's like, ah, I did. Oh, me too. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And then he he
0: leaves money uh, when he leaves the scene. He's like, he just kind of fucks off to a different country. And they end up splitting the cash that he left behind. They each got 150. Yeah. It
3: was very sweet.
0: (laughs) They (laughs) worked at the same jobs. Yeah, Yeah. I feel like
4: the sexual politics of this are actually pretty interesting. And when you tie that in, like kind of the same with the political stuff with the rise of Nazism... I don't know, it, it tells a very interesting story about uh, decadence mm-hmm. and, you know, focusing on you so much to where you're blinded to these right. outside realities. Yeah.
1: And she's, I mean, uh, Liza Minnelli as Sally Bowles is the least political character in this film. Like everybody else is, imp- like there's a side story about this man named Fritz who's in love with this very rich German Jewish woman and you know, their relationship is impacted by the Nazis in Berlin. Um, but she just really doesn't give a shit about any of that. She just wants to be a star. And at the very end, like she's given the chance to kind of have a quote unquote normal life with Brian and like move to this little cottage in Cambridge and she's gonna be his wife. Um, and, and she refuses that, you know, and it, I think she's kind of punished in the film for making that choice for choosing to like no i'm gonna pursue my stardom um i'm gonna live in the cabaret and then um you know berlin is kind of infiltrated by she nazism started, the yeah punished well, for being ignorant right the fact
0: well that, i think yeah
4: the, yeah the film is critical of her being so naive and not seeing right like, dude the nazis are taking over yeah like <laughs> this is important shit that you should probably be concerned about. Mm-hmm.
0: I saw this for the first time in the last year of Donald Trump's oh. presidency and watching just sort of like Nazism become mainstream again, right. like, gradually over yeah. the course of his presidency. This movie punched me in the fucking gut. Yeah, yeah. there's agree. There's a scene that was controversial and removed from the film um, in its time um, where they're in the countryside, you know, yeah. they're both fucking Maximilian and they go to this like sort of like German countryside picnic. And in the middle of their picnic, everyone starts singing this, like, Nazi anthem about, like, the future and, like, how it's all going to be, like, this one unified Germany and Mm -hmm. this, nationalist white agenda. And that scene turned my stomach. Mm -hmm. Because as they're, like, sort of, like, going about their, I don't want to say frivolous, but, like, sort of self-involved, like, drama um, among themselves and among Mm -hmm. the other cabaret people that, like, slow trickle of the Nazi stuff, like, sort of piling up and becoming the norm under the surface, mm-hmm. it's terrified scary. me. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean,
3: I felt the same way, because I've, like, watched it for the first time for this. Oh, wow. Like, fully.
0: I'm shocked. Uh, yeah. I thought you would have, like, been, seen this. <laughs> it was a very
3: movie. No, I never, and I just never got around to, like, actually seeing it, other than, like, a few clips of, like, the performances, which I love. Right. But, yeah, like, the the, you know, having the, you know, Nazi party out in the streets, like, passing out these, like, you know, all the propaganda. And, like, there was even this moment where I can't remember... There was like an older couple sitting down and it it felt like how these people feed into QAnon. Yeah. Like the conspiracy of which, which I mean, QAnon is very like anti-semantic because it's doing the same shit that was done then. It's just in a different fashion. And I was like, holy shit. It was so bizarre. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That scene, it's this, the these two people, older people in the boarding house And the woman is like, wait, so how can they all be communists and also like the bankers ruling the world? And he says like, I mean, it's just cognitive dissonance. He's like, oh, well, if they can't get us one way, they'll get us another way. And I felt like I was listening to someone who just like watches Fox News.
4: Yeah, that was running through my head throughout the picture was, you know, the rise of Trumpism and that's where and like, I think that's the main message of this is like, that shit can... Come to power when, mm-hmm. like, good people aren't aware that this is like. And I, you know, I sort of like <laughs> was thinking about myself and yeah. like maybe I could have done more mm-hmm. to.
0: Remember when Trump running for president kind of felt like a joke? Yeah, it was yeah. a joke. Was like, like
4: a oh, yeah. Huh. And that's like. We kind should have this
3: the stuff out of their hands. They're passing around like, you know, he did. I mean, so he did. So it's beat sort up. of an <laughs>
4: indictment of that like, right. laissez faire attitude towards like totalitarianism. Yeah. And that's like yeah. a pretty. Important message, even in our modern political climate. Yeah.
1: And the last scene was so chilling Mm -hmm. to me. It's Mm -hmm. this because it's this very loud, loud musical, colorful, like people going here and there to, you know, expensive bars and clubs and restaurants. And the last scene ends there. It's like a reprise of their welcome song, the song Cabaret, Liza Minnelli just performed. And the last shot is the nazis in this club and it's panning over the nazis and it's kind of distorted by this rippling glass pane and it's absolutely silent and then mm-hmm. it just like freezes on the oh. nazis and the credits roll and there's no music it's
0: like a fr- the last shot of a texas chainsaw mask right where it fr- freezes on the yeah. house, screaming in the back of the truck it's chilling right it's so scary yeah
3: i was assuming that this was just gonna be like an earlier version of burlesque Right, yeah. But I was so surprised at like all these, like the intense like political component of it and just, I just didn't know. That's
0: intentional too because Alan Cumming plays the MC character in Burlesque, which he is most famous for playing the MC Mm -hmm. character in Cabaret on the stage. And the version I had seen of this before several times Mm -hmm. was um, the Sam Mendes recording for HBO production of Cabaret from the 90s with Alan Cumming in the main your MC role. Yeah, I love the MC. It's great, and honestly, I had heard through theater fans. I don't know that much about musical theater, so I just kind of took their expertise for it yeah. a word. Like, no, that stage play is like the height of it, and the movie like softens it and cuts it down and like gets rid of like Ooh. all the political context. And if you read about like the way it was recognized in the seventies, like people thought that it was kind of not—I want to say pro-fascism, but not as hard on the mm. fascism uprising. And I don't know, watching this for the first time, I did not feel that at all. Like I yeah. feel like this movie is chilling. It's almost like a horror. Yeah. About, I, about Nazism like being allowed to rise to the top.
4: Yeah, I feel like it's, you know, it's not pro-fascism, but it's more anti the like complacency. Letting, yeah, complacency mm-hmm. and letting it happen. Yeah. And that's where the real <laughs> indictment is. But
1: I do think I haven't seen the musical, but I think the musical is more like obviously tackles those issues like in the, in the musical there is actually a relationship there is like a misogynistic relationship between a german christian and a german jew yeah and that's like like the jewish i can't remember if it's the man and the woman but they they're like terrorized by the nazis so i and the musical there are even more musical numbers that are specifically tackling like sally Bowles living in a dream and you need to wake up and you know look at what's going on around you um so i think i think it was compared to that it is less critical and that
0: sam Mende- sam mendes version is on youtube in its entirety I-, I think it's worth watching yeah um i think this movie's better than that I mean, <laughs> I, that might be me coming from like a movie fan where i don't mm-hmm. really care about you know Faithfulness to the source material. Right. Like I feel like I got the point of this movie without needing yeah. the extra songs that were cut out. Like mm-hmm. being faithful isn't the end all be all of yeah. making a film. And I, I maybe part of like what hits me is like knowing that like in New Orleans we are living in a city much like that era <laughs> of Berlin, like that Weimar era of Berlin, where like. We are partying on a sinking ship. This city will right. not exist in 200 years because the fucking wetlands are disappearing from under us, and this city is built on mush that will like, <laughs> disappear into the Gulf. I feel like that kind of decadence that's in this it speaks to so much of what I grew up with, like that like Rocky Horror aesthetic from like the 70s, mm-hmm. a little later than this, like that sort of like pansexual bacchanal like um, kind of theatricality. Is so much a part of like my soul and my identity <laughs> and like what I look for in art, um, and I feel like this movie is kind of the progenitor of a lot of that stuff. And it, what I really was struck by thinking about all of that, like maybe you can respect from like an academic distance, like oh, this movie started all these different artistic tastes that I've kind of glommed onto like decades later. What really stuck with me is like the fact that Bob Fosse is a stage director; he puts on play productions mm-hmm. on the stage. You would think that he would shoot this like a stage play. Like it would be like almost like how we're talking about Maltese Falcon felt very stagey. It's not like that at all. The editing mm-hmm. is just as aggressive yeah. as Citizen Kane is. Mm-hmm. And the actual song performances that are at the Kit Kat Club are between the dancers' legs. Mm-hmm. It's like behind their backs. It's all over the place with the camera. And not just shooting them from the audience in this like static position from a distance, which is what I expected out of this.
4: Yeah. And w- one thing I noticed too, was like, I, I remember reading something about how great screenplays, like a scene usually ends with like the punchline or like the best line or the thing mm-hmm. that the whole scene was building to. And I noticed in this film, especially in the beginning, like every scene ended on that perfect line. And then it cut like almost a little too quickly. Yeah. to The next scene, there was this like forward momentum,
0: going on that i i really really liked it's a wildly entertaining film kind of like citizen kane i expected something a little more stately and like reserved and Not it really isn't that i, I can kind of say that about all these movies like even maltese falcon which is maybe the most like traditionally made like old hollywood film in this bunch mm-hmm. even though it has humphrey bogart like being an absolute cad and, like <laughs> you know kind of a jokester and like sarcastically tearing apart everything as if it was, like, a Marx brother or something. Um, all these movies are, like, very entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. I think you could play them for, like, the average person and they wouldn't be bored. It's not, like, um, a grand epic that, like, uh, would test someone's patience. I feel like all these films are,
1: yeah. like...
4: And that was sort of my, like, thought going into it. It's like, oh, this is going to be kind of a slog of an episode to mm-hmm. talk about these... Classic movies and they're gonna be kinda of boring and, and they're not all
3: a, so long too. I was yeah, so, I'm like, like, oh Ryan, my god, yeah. we're like <laughs> over <laughs> an yeah. hour
4: and twenty minutes. What am I gonna do? Like? <laughs> yeah. They were all really entertaining. Yeah. And yeah. great films. So yeah. I mean, I don't know. The critics get it right the, sometimes.
1: The only film actually that I had seen of these three was or these four was Sunset Boulevard, but all three of them totally defied my expectations. Like I thought uh, Citizen Kane would be this, like, boring two-hour whatever. It was very entertaining. I thought Cabaret was, like what you were saying, just, like, burlesque or, like, right. this, like, hunky-dory musical. And it was, like, totally the opposite. So bleak. Yeah. And then The Maltese Falcon, I was like, okay, this, I know what it's going to be, like, straightforward noir. And then it was just, like, this campy and ridiculous. So... Yeah, just uh, if you think you know a movie based on what other uh, people have said about it, you don't. Yep, <laughs> yeah. just watch it.
0: And I kind of wish I could see all of these on the big screen, at Britannia. I feel like that's our best bet yeah. to see them. Yeah, we don't have a robust repertory culture here in New Orleans. Like Britannia Classic Movies series is really the height of it. So 10 a.m. on Sundays at that theater, they play a lot of Hitchcock. I talk about Hitchcock very much today, but they play a lot of his stuff. And then every now and then you'll see something like Maltese Falcon on the schedule. It's very much worth watching. Yeah. That movie is very funny with the crowd. (laughs) And I don't know if I would have rated it as high as the rest of these if I had not seen it first with like a full audience laughing their asses off before lunch. Yeah. (laughs) Which is great. I mentioned reviews at the top of this episode. We're giving up on that officially. Review us if you feel like we might see it. But if you could just contact us on Facebook, Twitter, Letterboxd, or swampflix at gmail.com and recommend a film to us. Yeah, I will read that recommendation on the air. I don't know if anyone of us will watch <laughs> it. Only we have the power to make each other watch movies. But uh, <laughs> I will read your film recommendation on the air and we'll discuss that recommendation. Whether um, Or that we've seen it before. Just kind of talk about it. Yes. Pitch us. Pitch us a film. Maybe we'll do a whole episode around it. Who knows? <laughs> and uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks um, with... I think newer films. We're going to kind of stray away from the greatest films of all time for a little bit. (laughs) Uh, Next week on the show, I am making Boomer and Allie watch one of my favorite films of all time, which did not make the AFI's Top 100 list, which was Godzilla vs. Hedera from the early 1970s. Uh, It's a psychedelic film about how pollution is bad, (laughs) and Godzilla fights a trash monster in it. It's fantastic. Uh, and I'm excited to see what their opinions on that film is for the first time. I think I made Brittany watch that when we you first did. met, yeah. Yeah,
3: you're like it's Godzilla, but he fights a floating heap of trash <laughs> and Perfection. I loved it. And I think like the ending it I, all I remember from like the ending of it isn't what's the name of that painting with like the those Japanese waves, that very uh, famous yeah, one. Yeah. It's just like plastered on there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's a wi- wild ride. I'm, I can't wait to like listen to y'all talk about how
2: freaking crazy it is. Brandon, yeah.
4: have you ever seen Son of Godzilla? Yes, I have. Where he teaches he <laughs> <little laughs> his son how to be a, a Godzilla <laughs> Aww, man. It's, it's very it's, adorable. It's, so his son adorable. is very cute.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is ac- actually after that era where it's like Godzilla is like a hero to children everywhere. Like it's very like cute and like four kids. <laughs> but <laughs> um, this is more psychedelic and more like Haosu than oh, most other okay. Godzilla <laughs> films. <laughs> Um, and much like the Almodovar films, like Godzilla is very present on Criterion and on HBO Max right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you have any Godzilla itches you want to scratch, uh, now's the time to jump on it, because it's widely available to stream in great quality. We'll be back next week with that episode. Goodbye, everybody. Bye! Bye! Bye.